Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Imagine that you have ambitions to be in one of the most powerful, important jobs in the world. You want to be the President of the United States of America and you have a shot at it and then you find that it doesn't work out, that you get squeezed out by other candidates. But that's what happened to today's guest on Magnified with Matt Cooper. The former Mayor of Baltimore, Governor of Maryland and one-time possible Democratic nominee to be President of the United States who could have stood instead of Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. Martin O'Malley is our guest today. He's fascinating on the state of America as it is at present. And he also talks about his quasi-portrayal as one of the sources or bases for David Simon's treatment in The Wire of the mayoral candidate. So today's Magnified with Matt Cooper in association with MG is the fascinating friend of Shane McGowan. That's another story about him. How, because of his musical interests, he has become somebody who has played music with Shane McGowan. Our guest is Martin O'Malley. Martin O'Malley, to start, I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to imagine that you had won the Democratic nomination and had to run <laughs> against Donald Trump. Oh, what a wonderful world. Okay, because you were, you were the third man. You got caught, I suppose, in a pincer movement between <laughs> Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, didn't yes. you? When you ran in the Iowa caucus. I did, Denver. I did. But just imagine, in an alternative reality, that you had won and you had faced Donald Trump. How would you have faced him in an election? Oh, I have no... I, I, I believe I would have beaten him, I have no doubt. Uh, and uh, In fact, it's a... It's something that people frequently say to me, uh, that you would have beaten Trump. And I do believe that I would have. In fact, uh, even knowing how, uh, uh, you know, seemingly insurmountable the odds were of, of, of winning the Democratic nomination against Hillary Clinton when President Obama had endorsed her and endorsed her early and so strongly that even his own vice president dared not try to challenge her. Even knowing that, I just had a feeling in my bones that there was no way that she was going to be able to win the general. And as Donald Trump emerged, I became even more convinced that that if she faced him, that that he would likely defeat her. So I couldn't not try. <laughs> and the only consolation I have, uh, one that went the wrong way for our country, was that I did my very best and I did try and I did my you know, I, I did give the people a choice, uh, but I was kind of caught in that pincer uh, movement. So um, I don't know. I guess the call of your question, Matt, is uh, how would things have been different? I think they would have been different in many ways. And I do believe that we would have defeated them. And the reason we would have defeated them is that while he was tapping into people's fear that tomorrow was going to be worse than today, I could have tapped into the hope that actually tomorrow could be better if we act like Americans and we embrace the future instead of cowering like children and being afraid of it. And I'll get to where we are in American politics in a moment, but I just want to stay with that idea because it did strike me. The night that Trump won in 2016, I was in New York and I was on 6th Avenue down by the Hilton Hotel where the crowds were waiting for Trump to turn mm -hmm. up. And... I was astonished by the anti-Hillary Clinton vitriol 
which ran in two ways. One, it was actually sexist and misogynist. There's a lot of this crowd just did not want to see a woman win. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And it was also that they felt that she was an elitist. Mm. Whereas if you had run, you wouldn't have been perceived as an elitist. I'd suspect you might have appealed to the sort of the working class who turned against Hillary Clinton and turned to Trump. Well, I always did. And the other contested elections I had is mayor of Baltimore and uh, majority African-American city that that where, where people elected me twice. And my, my best numbers came from the poorest neighborhoods in Baltimore. And I also was able to, to tap into, you know, working class, middle class aspirations when I when I ran for governor in two elections, defeating a Republican incumbent. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I campaigned for Hillary Clinton in 30 states in the general election. Uh, I think, in fact, I went to Wisconsin for Hillary more than Hillary went to Wisconsin for Hillary. I did not dislike Hillary Clinton. Uh, in fact, I, I admire her in many ways, and I liked her. Uh, uh, so it was not a casual thing for me to... to you know, compete against her, run against her in the in that primary, but it, it is one of the one of the strangest ironies of that whole Trump and Clinton contest that she was painted in the minds of so many of my fellow Americans as the elitist candidate, when in fact she actually came from more working class background, humbler background. Than Donald Trump, who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, but she was, you know, there are a few things that happened in our country leading up to that election. Uh, one of those things was that wages had actually declined for about two decades. And that was the first time that that had happened since World War II in the United States of America. Uh, so even on the on the on the verge of that election with unemployment being at, you know, a, a low uh, coming out of the recession, uh, the, uh, a low level that we hadn't seen in a long time, white male suicides were higher than they'd ever been. There is a terrible fear and a terrible shame that particularly uh, is, is gripping a lot of our my neighbors. Uh, who are white and are men and are older and feel like they're failing their children, that they're not giving them what their daddy gave to them. And uh, against that fear, uh, Hillary was painted as the elitist and uh, it, un it unleashed, you know, not only the misogyny and the other things that you talked about, it, it unleashed so many things in our country. Never thought we'd do that to ourselves, but we did. And we've got to own it. And then we've got to do better. And but Martin said the sick irony of that was that Trump and his ilk tapped into that, but yet they were the main beneficiaries of that division between the rich and poor, which has developed in America in recent decades. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> yes, and and from from uh, looking at it with the perspective of. The Irish following it from afar, I'm sure you all were probably scratching your heads and saying, how can this be that people who are angry about an elitist economy and about an economy for the few uh, uh, 
would turn to a guy like Donald Trump, who has been the biggest beneficiary of an economy by the by the few, and and hiring lawyers and accountants to con the the federal government out of even paying taxes. <laughs> like, how could that guy be the champion of people who are pissed that their that their uh, country and their economy no longer work for them? We uh, uh, he was. He was greatly underestimated by a lot of people. Uh, if you were to look at the uh, language in the debates and look at the use of uh, conjunctions, you're a wordsmith. You're a guy who appreciates the English language like uh, so many Irish people do, but, but you're a professional in broadcasting. The, uh, if you were to look at an analysis, I read this in a, a book by a guy named Joe Rome of the language that Hillary Clinton used in the debate and the language of Donald Trump, you will find that Hillary Clinton frequently used the conjunction and, 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 and. Whereas Donald Trump had a diabolical talent, as most con men do, of telling a story with an equal use of the conjunctions and, but, and so. And, but, and so is the classic structure of every folktale, every story, every good song, and, but, and so. And he told a better story. Our story came to sound like with and, 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 and. It sounds really quickly to be blah, 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 blah. His story was and, but, and so. And he, he tapped into the fear that Americans had. And Bernie did this in a, in a different way. Uh, but it was the same fear that uh, uh, someone else is taking from you what should be yours, and you need to rise up and strike out against them. How frustrating was it for you to watch all of this going on? <laughs> is, is, is this a podcast or therapy? <laughs> it, was, it was maddening. It was maddening. You know, before the debates, before anybody had voted, the media entertainment industry who's taken over our presidential process would tell us, Hillary gets 50% of the questions tonight, Bernie gets 40, and you'll get 10. And if you talk over your 10% allotment, we will turn off your microphone. And Matt, it wasn't the League of Women Voters that were making those rules. It was the wonderful world of Disney. It was decisions by rating executives that... These are the figures that sell the most soap or the most cars. These are the ones that excite and agitate the most. And so, you know, our, our presidential debates, and that they did it in a different way on the Republican side, but always to lift up Trump. As the head of CBS said, I know it's bad for the country, but it's great for ratings. So I say, go, Donald, go. And in every debate, they would put him in the center of the stage among accomplished people. I mean, I disagreed with most of them on their policy choices. They were not of my party, but they were some accomplished people on that stage. And they started to carry him and bounce and rebound every question, even to those other accomplished public servants off of Donald Trump. For example, Jeb Bush, Donald Trump says you're low on energy. How do you respond to that question? Well, and... And 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 that's what they've that's what's we've allowed to happen to our our presidential selection process in the U.S. So was I frustrated? Super frustrated. We even gamed the notion of having me after two debates where they wouldn't even let me answer the healthcare question, even though I was the only one of the three of us on the stage that had actually implemented the Affordable Care Act in any state. We toyed with the idea and actually gamed the idea of kicking over the podium 
and storming off the stage. But silly, stupid us. We didn't think the American people wanted an angry president. <laughs> In hindsight, I should have done it. <laughs> Wouldn't have heard anything. <laughs> and then what do you then make of what's happened to American politics throughout the Trump regime and reign and then subsequently how the Republican Party still seems enthralled to him, which has created this extraordinary division or is American politics always like that? Or has there been over the generations always been these extremes between Republican and Democrat at different times? Or is this worse? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the longer arc of our history, um, it sounds funny even talking about a long arc of history as an American in Ireland. But if you look over the longer life of our republic, uh, we have had periods of, of, of really intense division, like people dying on election days, violent deaths, uh, people kidnapping people in other opponent precincts and holding them until election day was over. So that was true of our country on the eve of the uh, War of 1812. Uh, of course, became, you know, we fought a civil war with great bloodshed and division in the 1860s. And, um, while the the geographic lines of you know division are not as clear, uh, we're in another period of profound civil polarization in the United States. We haven't entirely come out of it, but I am grateful that we did throw off uh, Donald Trump after just one term. There aren't many republics that correct as quickly as we have the election of a fascist president. And I do not use that word lightly. I was scolded by the major media when I called him out as a fascist candidacy before others were willing to do so. But his campaign and his candidacy, the, the turning of his supporters in violent ways against opponents, the vilifying and dehumanizing of people of a different race, all of the, the scapegoating, all of these things are the markers of a fascist presidency. And there, and there are not many republics who have elected a fascist and then did a course correction. Having said that, we're still in a very vulnerable time. And as Democrats, we need to govern better than we have. And yet we also have extremely thin governing margins, especially in the United States Senate. So there's um, um, a lot of people very fearful of the consequences of Republican victories in the midterms in November. An awful lot of people talking about the potential for possibly a Trump comeback in 2024, or if not Trump, somebody who might even be worse than him. Yeah, it's, I think that's been... Uh, I, I have reached the point, uh, what do they call it, the beginning of wisdom, when you really start to question everything it is that you thought you knew. So uh, far be it from me to project or predict American politics, given what we've gone through. Uh, I, I think there's still a real danger and a real threat that he will come back. Our rule of law, our... our criminal justice systems, the sort of prosecutorial authorities and and other mechanisms of our criminal law uh, appear like, you know, uh, appear to be absolutely useless 
and, and bringing Donald Trump to justice. Um, uh, and uh, so I think there still is a possibility that he comes back. The Republican Party is still very much the core of the Republican Party, and those are the people that vote in the primaries, are still very much uh, within his grip. Our own Maryland uh, governor uh, has talked about running for president, and yet, and he's a Republican, and yet Donald Trump would beat him by a three-to-one margin in his own state. <laughs> and ours is not a super conservative state, although we are a southern state. We're just barely a southern state. So, look, man, it's uh, it's still a problem. Uh, we all need to stay engaged, and Democrats need to, to govern better. Uh, the good news that I see out there is that if you look at the major population centers and Gallup polling measures trust all the time, asking Americans questions of trust, despite everything we've gone through with uh, questionings about policing and, and racial injustice and the way that those two issues have been intertwined in our nation since its beginning, there is a higher level of trust that Americans express in the in their local governments, in their city governments, in their county governments, than they do even in their state or in their national government, where trust is very, very low. So I do believe that given the uh, uh, amount of uh, uh, capacity, dollars, that have been given to cities, you're going to start to see some of the fruits of what Joe Biden did early in the administration start to come to fruition in projects, broadband for all, uh, renewable energy, and other things that tell Americans, once again, yes, we can still accomplish big things. We can still get stuff done. But will people vote for that? Or will people vote on the basis again, as you've already referred to, as to what sells on television and on the internet, the whole idea of big personalities? Because it seems from this remove across the Atlantic, that Joe Biden, if he was to run again, would struggle against Trump or some other Republican. He would be portrayed as old and out of touch. And if he wasn't to run, the Democrats don't seem to have the big personality coming forward who could confront a Republican. Yeah, my sense of things is that, um, you know, it, it takes a while for the things that a new president puts into motion to become visible and tangible and to become the stories that can that will actually be persuasive for people to vote for. Uh, President Obama, for example, made a big mistake in the Recovery Act that he passed and not going large enough so that by the time the midterms came around, he, it, it, it was a horrible defeat for Democrats right on the eve of the redistricting of Congress and drawing those borders, which then denied President Obama a majority in Congress to work with for the rest of his six years in office. I do believe that the scale of what we have done, the flexibility with which it has been done and given to to governors and, and mayors across the country means that you're going to see some more tangible evidence of, of forward movement. Uh, having said that, certainly the war in Europe and Ukraine and what's that what that has done to gas prices uh, was uh, and what that's also done to inflation has everybody kind of uh, looking for scapegoats. And of course, the president's the president, the buck stops here. Uh, so that's a challenge. But I, I do believe that I think the president Biden will be uh, our best bet uh, in the, the upcoming election. 
and uh, and I do believe that you're going to see some greater fruits of his labors and accomplishments come to life because of the scale of it being so much larger than what President Obama chose to do in his early time in office. When you dropped out of that presidential run in 2016, was that really the end of your active role in politics? Yes, you- apparently. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know it at the time. Uh uh, Would you not go back to it? I mean, clearly you're still really engaged by it. Yeah, you know, uh, sometimes even the work that you want to do is no longer yours to do. Uh, the I gave it my very best, and I feel like I died on the battlefield, you know, like the minstrel boy, and I tore the cords asunder. <laughs> I gave it all I had. And uh, uh, I don't... Um, it's really hard after you after you try greatly and then fail to get your friends who you have to depend on to give you money to run a campaign, to get them to believe that you have a, a, a greater use in in the political arena. So I, I continue to be very engaged. I, I work with mayors and governors all over the country um, through my work with Grant Thornton as a public sector management consultant. Uh, and um, that's what I, and, and that was one of the things, one of many that my team were good at was measuring performance using openness, transparency, geographic information systems, you know, big data to make better decisions to help individual people improve their lives. So, so I continue to do that. Uh, and I love, love, love finding the rare man or woman out there, newly elected, newly minted mayor who actually has the the guts to embrace this this new brave world where you can measure performance and get things done. So, so that's what I continue to do. Uh, and uh, you know, my, I'm very proud of my wife. My wife is running for attorney general of Maryland. You'll have the result of the primaries by the time this podcast is going out to air. How hopeful are you for her? I'm very hopeful. She has gone to court. She's the real. She's the real attorney. Uh, she has gone to court. And I mean, I'm a lawyer by training. I, I was a practicing lawyer for 10 years. But Katie's gone to court every day for 30 years. 10 as a prosecutor, rising to be the head of the White Collar Crimes uh, Unit in Baltimore County. She has uh, 20 years as a judge, and her opponents never tried a single criminal case in his life in Maryland. So the contrast is super clear. And uh, and so I'm, I'm very proud of her. At this point, uh, as we speak, she's probably fought her opponent to even, but in those mid-ballot races, it's all determined by the 30% of us who don't make up their mind until we fill out the ballot. But I think those undecideds are breaking her way. So so we'll see. Win, lose, her time. Very, very proud of her. She's done. She's run a great race and uh, started way behind and is pretty much pulled to even right now. I want to ask you a few things about what still interests us in America, which would have been very much core to your time as governor of Maryland and also as mayor of Baltimore. I want to ask you about immigration. Sure. Because one of the things you did as uh, governor, I think, wasn't it, was that making it easier for the children of immigrants to get education funding. How much pushback did you get on that? And how dispiriting do you find it then to have the likes of Trump and Republicans now doing whatever they can to deny rights to immigrants? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, let me provide a little bit of background. My, my, I was very keenly aware and taught by my parents around the dinner table that our people were immigrant people who came to America. 
and and put a lot of sweat, blood, and tears into making America the great nation that so she even, is. Even though this was generations previously, I mean, your parents weren't first-generation immigrants or anything no, like my, that. You go back centuries, don't you? Yeah, my 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 I am a third-generation American. So my father's grandfather had uh, immigrated to America in the 1880s. My mom's uh, great my mom's grandparents. We're, uh, we're mostly German people who also immigrated in the 80s when Bismarck was, you know, closing down Catholic schools and, and doing that sort of stuff. Um, my dad fought in World War II. Uh, both of my, you know, my maternal and, and paternal grandparents fought in World War I in the United States Army. And uh, I was raised by parents who taught me that one of the great, you know, secrets of American greatness is that our beautiful country is infused with new energy by the arrival in every generation of immigrant people from all over the planet who love our country, love what we stand for, and work hard because they love their children and uh, will give them a better life. So when I was governor and some of this uh, fear of the future and you know, our country, you know, is becoming more diverse stuff was happening. We commissioned a commission on new Americans and we put a fair amount of, you know, public points, if you will, behind the notion of new Americans that oftentimes immigrants who come to Maryland can't be can't contribute as much to our economy as they as they would if they could get more easily licensed in the professions that they had you know, in their past country. I mean, why do we want to have a doctor or a qualified nurse driving a cab or doing Uber when we need these sorts of skills in our hospitals? So we did a whole, we did a commission on new Americans. We also passed early on, uh, even with the Homeland Security backdrop, uh, we pushed hard for exceptions uh, for new American immigrants who were not yet, you know, naturalized. So uh, in other words, driver's licenses for undocumented people in our country. And then we pushed for uh, in-state tuition. We called it at the time the DREAM Act. It was a little different than the federal DREAM Act, but we called it the DREAM Act. And in essence, what it did was it allowed any uh, immigrant kid who could get into a state school in the University of Maryland system to avail themselves of in-state tuition, which for your Irish listeners, you should know that the difference between paying out-of-state tuition and in-state tuition, I mean, it's just a fortune. And one of the only good deals in American higher education is in-state tuition at a public university. So we made that available to uh, immigrant people. We also did a number of things on uh, Medicaid so that expectant moms could get the help they needed uh, to bear their children to term in a healthy way because we that was part of our goal of reducing... Uh, infant mortality. And we saw that a lot of Latino moms were losing babies because our system was not giving them the services that they should have been receiving as humans. So uh, I, w I worked on all of those things. I'm very proud that we passed all of those things. Uh, and on that debate stage when I ran for president, I, I do believe that I was the only one of the three of us that was full-throated in my defense, not only of, of the, you know, the morals and the work ethic, of new Americans, uh, but I was also very, uh, I, I very much called out Donald Trump's uh, fascist scapegoating and pointed out that at least in that year when I was 
in 2016 that net immigration uh, south of our border was zero. In other words, more people left than came in from south of our border that year. Uh, but he turned it in to this great story that brown and black people were taking your money from you. I'm sure there are people in the States who would sort of almost spit out the word that you're a progressive. But you did do a lot of progressive things. Uh, for example, something else that you would have done, I think around the same time as we had our major referendum here in Ireland, is you were the person who brought in same-sex marriage in Maryland. Yeah, we did a lot of progressive things. I am a progressive. I'm a liberal. Uh, uh, I believe in greater freedom for greater numbers of people. I believe that progress is possible. And I believe that a strong government can be a tremendous tool in that cause of progress for individual families. So we passed, uh, yeah, we passed, we were the first state to pass at the ballot, marriage equality. Uh, we didn't intend to send it to the ballot. <laughs> it was sent to the ballot by our Republican brothers and sisters in the, to try to kill it. Um, but we succeeded in defending it at the ballot, which even a lot of the advocates didn't think we would be able to do in our state, given our demographics, which those advocates didn't understand as, as well as I did. We also were the first state in the United States, and I think the last state, to ban combat assault weapons and require licensing and uh, background checks and and training and, and all of that stuff. We I mean, also you, You've brought me to guns, which I do want to get to in a moment, but I am interested in the same-sex marriage because you've mentioned mm -hmm. your Catholicism earlier. And I think you are a practicing Catholic, aren't you? And you came under pressure. I'm still practicing. From the Catholic Church, <laughs> didn't you? From the bishops. Yeah, they kind of, well, one bishop. My own bishop threatened to excommunicate me. He sent me, <clears throat> I guess, the uh, the, the uh, church equivalent of a cease and desist letter. <laughs> told me that if I continued, that if I persisted on this path, uh, that I would no longer be in a, uh, a state to be able to receive communion. Uh, so I wrote back to him respectfully, and I said that, look, man, I'm, I didn't say man. He was a cardinal. Look, eminence or whatever you're supposed to call him. Uh, I said, on this bridge between the sacred and the secular, you and I will find many things about which we agree, you know, feeding, uh, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, uh, serving the poor, healing the sick. I said, but on this one, you and I were going to disagree. As somebody who leads and is responsible for administering the law that must be applied equally to people of different faiths, I have an obligation that when I come across a, a law or a situation uh, comes to my attention that is fundamentally unjust and treats people differently under the law and treats the children of same-sex partners with lesser protections than the children of heterosexual partners, I have an obligation and a duty and an oath to try to change that. And that's what I'm going to do. And I didn't hear back from him. And then we passed it. Took us three tries in the legislature, uh, but lots of things took three tries. I mean, 
repealing, we were the first state south of the Mason-Dixon line, first southern state in the United States to repeal the death penalty. Um, so I'm, pr I'm proud of those things that we did. We also made our public schools number one in America five years in a row, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce named us number one state three years in a row for innovation and entrepreneurship. And uh, I do believe that we had the highest median income in America for most of those years that I was governor. Uh, so we believe in a stronger middle class, that our economy is not money, it's people, and we invest in our people. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what we were able to accomplish. Were you excommunicated? I was not excommunicated. It's funny, as quickly as the one guy came across, shot that one across my bow, uh, uh, another, uh, uh, I've never said this in an interview, uh, another, as soon as the Cardinal of Baltimore shot that one across my bow, the Cardinal of Washington came to see me. And while he didn't exactly say it, he said that uh, he understands I have to serve people of many different faiths, and his job is much simpler than uh, mine. And he said that he hoped he'd see me sometime at Mass. So he didn't exactly say it, but he said it. <laughs> Has he seen you at Mass since? I haven't seen him since. But the other guy didn't pull his excommunication trigger either. <laughs> there were other places I could go for Mass. <laughs> Talking about pulling the trigger, this is something else that here in Ireland we're stunned by the American attitude towards having guns and using them. And every time we see a mass shooting and every time we see children being killed, the majority of us here in Ireland are just absolutely flabbergasted yeah. by the vehemence by which people not only defend the carrying of guns and the use of guns, but seem to believe that having more guns is the way to deal with what is a crisis yeah. for your country. What's wrong with you? Yeah, it's a real sickness in our country, you know. Shane McGowan uh, said once that there's a violence in the soil of America. Sadly, he might be right. Uh, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't understand it, but I at least have enough understanding to understand that it's not the norm, that we're way out of whack. Uh, it's a, there's a, bit of a sickness in America around the violence and our acceptance of violence and our willingness in Ernie O'Malley's words to sleep on another man's wound. You know, as long as the violence isn't happening to me or people like me. These mass shootings, you would think, would have shaken us to our core. I remember very distinctly the Connecticut shooting and where I was at the time when I heard that news. And... Uh, I told our head of, uh, you know, my chief lobbyist, if you will, the guy that worked for the governor and makes sure the governor's agenda goes through, not, a, I mean, public servant. Uh, I said, we got to do something. We're going to ban combat assault weapons. This is bullshit. And, and I said, if we do it, other states will follow. He said, the speaker and the Senate president aren't going to want to do it. These, NR these bills are really hard. They're going to bring in everybody at the NRA is just going to swarm. It's going to shut down the stake. They've been through this before. They don't believe that the juice is worth the squeeze. And I said, uh, I said, well, I disagree, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it whether they help me or not. But I think we're far more likely to be successful if they help me. So let them know I'm doing this. 
and I'm glad to talk to him. I wasn't back in the state house in that short ride before both the Senate president and the speaker were calling me and trying to warn me off of doing it. And I said, I said, how can we not do it? I said, I, said, I, can't, look, I can't look myself in the mirror if we don't do something on this. I said, and, and you know what? If we do and we show as Maryland that it's possible, other states will follow. Uh, it turns out uh, we were all right. Uh, In what way? Uh, uh, I was right that if we worked together, we'd produce a better bill and we could actually get it done, and we did. They were right that no other states followed. Why do you think other states didn't follow? What is it again? What, what is it that politicians fear? Because surely it's just as minority who were so keen to keep these yeah, assault rifles. Yeah, I don't know. You know, they could have, just as we talked a little earlier in this podcast um, uh, about how it's really easy to petition any bill to referendum now in Maryland to overturn something the legislature does. You can put it to popular vote and overturn it. Once we pass the, the ban on combat assault weapons and the reducing of magazines to no more than 10 and the license thing and the fingerprinting and background checks and all of that, they didn't even bother to send that to referendum because that was, you know, and, and, and it, it wasn't because they didn't want to overturn it, but they looked at the numbers and they saw that the people weren't with them on this. So in other states, I suppose it's different. Uh, some of my fellow governors said, well, you know, my state's hard. It's not like Maryland. Well, you know, Bernie Sanders on the, on the stage also said, oh, you know, because he was a big supporter of the NRA and always took a dive on gun bills for the NRA or holding them accountable. He said, well, Vermont's different. You know, we have rural areas in Vermont. Well, we have rural areas in Maryland as well. Um, so I, I don't know why others haven't put the juice, I mean, put, put their own skin and capital into uh, passing something. Uh, and having said that, uh, for all of the attention that the mass shootings get, if you look at the number of murders that happen in our cities, I mean, there are mass shootings that are happening every month in cities like Baltimore and Chicago. I mean, my goodness, more people died in six months in Chicago than in all the years of the troubles here in Ireland. And But they're young and they're poor and they're black. And for some reason, Americans don't care about that. Can we hold take a second? break? Yeah, man. Coming. Yeah, yeah, she looked, yeah. Sorry, I thought you might some. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're getting a lot of animated stuff here. I'm almost I'm really enjoying here, it. So I hope we're getting to it close. We are, don't worry. We've only got a few. I just need about another 10 minutes, I okay. think. Okay. Martin, before I talk to you about Ireland and your involvement in Ireland, there is one other thing I want to ask you about in the United States. And you just referred to sort of gang shootings in Baltimore and whatever. Um, for a lot of Irish people, what they know about Baltimore is probably from The Wire. Oh, yeah. Or for the new, which I've just finished watching, uh, We Own the City, which mm -hmm. is the new David Simon series. How do you think, how fairly and accurately do they portray the Baltimore that you know? Yeah, it, well, it's been great entertainment. And uh, Mr. Simon's made a lot of money uh, portraying nothing but, you know, hopelessness and death 
and the storyline that everyone in Baltimore is uh, is corrupt and stupid and violent. That's not the city I know. Certainly, uh, we've had more than our fair share of corruption, stupidity, and violence. Uh, some of the greatest stupidity in Baltimore, though, has been around the uh, mismanagement of policing and the bad leadership uh, that you know fails to openly and transparently police the police. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do politically because you have to, if you police the police, you have to own those cases when you find corrupt officers. Uh, we put a lot of things in place when I was mayor that were discontinued after I left by successive mayors. And no doubt they were told, hey, we need the cops on the street, not in headquarters. And they didn't ask the question, perhaps, what were they doing in headquarters? Well, they were part of internal investigations. They're the ones that are supposed to investigate the police. So there's a, a lot of uh, uh, there's a, a lot that is factually inaccurate about the entertainment that uh, uh, David Simon has portrayed, including in this latest series, which I haven't watched, nor did I read. Uh, da I knew David. You get a couple of mentions along the way, even uh, though it all happens, the all the stuff happens a good few years after you had left as mayor. Yeah, the latest series makes up uh, as pure fiction that I created the Gun Trace Task Force that attracted this cabal of some of the worst offending officers in American history. I mean, they created a little rogue murder gang. Uh, I did not create that nor would I have created a unit outside of the chain of command. Uh, that was something that was done under one of my successors and her police commissioner, who in a, uh, the latest report on it, said that he lost track of that unit, which was honest. Uh, but the portrayal in that, in that latest series that I created this unit uh, is, is totally inaccurate. And, and not true. David, for some reason, uh, became a political opponent of mine and also portrayed me as cheating on my wife with prostitutes in the last series, which was also totally factually untrue. Uh, but it was helpful to the narrative of my political opponent at the time who had a black ops crew in his own office who were pushing that narrative online. And then David portrayed it on television. So I, I know David very well. We had a symbiotic relationship when I was on the council as the leading critic of policing. And David was a renowned police reporter at the Baltimore Sun. I have not read his, uh, I didn't read any of his books, whether it was The Corner or those other things, having been a prosecutor and having been a defense attorney, I didn't need to read David's book to understand and serving on the city council. I stood in a gutter running with blood when five guys were shot down in Penn Lucy in the middle of the night when I was a councilman with my neighbors. Uh, so I didn't really need to read David's books to understand <laughs> what Baltimore was facing. But I didn't look at it as a 
as a hopeless gig on which I could make a lot of money. I saw it as an opportunity to save lives, and that's what what we did. And Baltimore could do it again. You know, from 2000 to 2009, Baltimore led the nation among major cities, over 500,000, led the nation, according to the FBI, in the rate of reduction of crime. Uh, I think that fact in and of itself annoyed David because he is very invested in the notion that the that uh, any law enforcement against drugs and uh, the use of drugs is uh, is a misuse of the policing and enforcement function. So he's very ideologically committed to that proposition. And he was also very annoyed when he was greenlighted to do a third part of his series. He needed to be embedded. He told HBO, I'll get the new mayor to let me embed in City Hall and follow him around for a year. And that's where we'll do this third part of the thing. And I told him, thank you, no, thank you. I I did not want to, I just didn't have time to do that. I had a job to do. And uh, so anyway, I guess uh, uh, back to the call of your question. I mean, people make shit up and I I can't really drive myself crazy that they, that they do. Uh, uh, All I know is that, um, when we did things that worked and when we actually policed the police with openness and transparency, the people I served in the poorest neighborhoods of Baltimore voted for me again, 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 and again by ever-increasing margins. And I don't believe many of them ever read one of David Simon's books or watched his latest TV show. Okay. To finish up, let's talk a little bit about Ireland. <laughs> you mentioned Shane McGowan earlier, who's a friend of yours. And in fact, when I like was to a... think of him as a friend of mine. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you did appear on The Late Late Show yeah, in 2019, a tribute right to him. invitation. Okay, so how did this all come about? I got an email from one of Shane's friends, and he said that, uh, you know, RT is doing a big tribute to Shane. And... Um, they asked him if he wanted any politician to be there, any political leader, and he asked he asked for you. And I said back to this email, who is this really? <laughs> because I hadn't talked to Shane in, I don't know, probably 10 years. My band, I played Irish music at home in a band, different iterations for, since I was 17. So, and we, and we had the honor to open for Shane McGowan and the Pogues and Shane McGowan and the Popes over the years. So I had, I had, he had come to Baltimore. He had played in Baltimore. He was very, uh, asked me a lot of questions about how it is that a majority African-American city could uh, uh, elect a, an Irish-American white guy. And um, so, it, 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 but it had been a long time. So I asked this person in the email, who is this really? And he said again, you know, Shane's friend Jerry and this is what's going down and I thought this is a scam this guy's going to ask me for my credit card number (laughs) or you know passcode to get into my computer next and so uh, knowing what what a feminist culture Ireland has and how the women run everything and are in charge of everything I said well surely there must be some woman at RTE who can tell me what they're paying for in terms of like hotel or air flights or the like. And I think this will get the scammer. And he writes back and he says, yeah, I'm looping you into Sarah now on this email. <laughs> She'll tell you what RTE cover and what they want. And I'll be damned. They said, 
yeah, it's real. And so Katie, let me, my wife, let me come over, and uh, and it was it was right before COVID. That was the last time I was here, and it was a great tribute to him that evening, and I was honored to be a part of it. I, I just, love that guy. I mean, just his his uh, his love of Irish history, the poetry, the pathos, the ability to express that in you know in lyrical and musical ways that sort of seething disconnected immigrant anger uh, but also to mitigate it with you know the tender and the sweet I, I don't I think there are very few artists that express the range that that guy does uh, and and all with a, a mission and a love and an appreciation of you know the Irish struggle for her own voice her own country and her own humanity Last thing, I'm meeting you here today because you're in Dublin on your way to Westport where you're going to be elected Taoiseach of the O'Malley's. Great uh, but honour. But you're also getting involved as a patron of the Global Economic Forum for Mayo in 2023 along with our former Taoiseach, Andy Kenny, our former president, Mary Robinson. Why? What's got you involved with that? Well, I mean, Jiminese. I mean, just to be involved in anything with Enda Kenny and with Mary Robinson, I mean, these are these are giants on the on the global stage. And, uh, uh, and, and I do believe that in recent years, uh, a lot of economic forums happen in ways that, that are exclusive. <laughs> and then we wonder why people who haven't gotten a raise in 20 years get angry that it appears that exclusive clubs and faraway places are making decisions about how their economy should be run. So I think this is a, a the Irish have, the Irish have never invaded another country with anything but their music. <laughs> and most people have liked it. And I believe that the Irish, one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons they've done so well in the EU. Uh, Mary McAleese once told me that she, uh, she was meeting all of the various chief justices, I mean, all of the justices of the European court, and they all had Irish clerks. And she asked, why is that? And they said, well, because the Irish have a way of going out after work and figuring out the common ground. So, you know, I, I guess Mary Robinson would, would express it differently about, you know, the sort of the, the fifth province, that sort of solidarity, that common ground that unites the other four provinces, uh, that, that sense of solidarity. I think the Irish have that. And that's an, a, a, a critically important uh, uh, ethic that needs to be dialed up in these times of uh, given the climate crisis, uh, uh, and global economies uh, return to the truth that our economy, whether you're talking about the economy of a village, the economy of a country, or economy of the world, our economy is not money, it's people. And and that's what this summit's about, and I'm glad to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of any summit that's exclusive for where you have to be a billionaire to be invited. I want to be a part of a summit that, that has the broader view of uh, and and an eye towards the longer arc of human history. And that's what the Irish, I think, will bring to it as a bridge between the United States and Europe. And I think it's going to be very successful in the years ahead. Martin Amari, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Matt. And that's it for today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. We hope that you enjoyed it. And there are a whole host of other interviews for you to enjoy. If you like this one, please recommend to friends, follow us 
wherever it is you get your podcasts share them with your friends and uh, we'll be back to you again next week thanks for joining us and this of course was done in association with mg magnified with matt cooper sponsored by mg the family-friendly electric range book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul